0: Alrighty, so 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 10, our high calling. The end of, well in verse 3, 1 Peter 2 verse 3, what we studied last week, it says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And the idea is not, I wonder if you have. It's, it's a full confidence that you have tasted of the favor and the love and the kindness and the generosity, the grace of God but he puts it in that conditional format so it'll just engage your little bit, your mind. Because when somebody says if, we automatically begin to weigh that out in our mind. And I hope that you have and you can look to and see, man, God has been so gracious to me and he's been so good to me. He says, taste and see. You know, chew on it. Um, <clears throat> you know, I like to grill. I like to barbecue. And I got this little little dog, Boomer. You know him. I've talked about him before. A little minpin. pin. And there's only one thing he cares about in life, and that's food. And everything else just kind of circulates around that. And, but, but when I grill, like if I'm going to you know, smoke a brisket or something like that, every single time I go out the door, he walks out the door. He's on high alert. If the if, you know, if alarm goes off to go check or whatever, he's at the door before I am. I mean, he's trained. And I mean, he'll do this for hours. Like if it's going to take me seven, eight hours, eight, I mean, he won't miss a time. So I figure if anybody works that hard, they do deserve to have a little bit of taste of that. And so he knows if he barbecues with me, um, he's going to get a little nibble here, there. So, but the thing that I do that I just can't stand it, and I tell him, I let him know this about himself, <laughs> is that when I give him that little bite, and I, and I go, here you go, and I throw it to him, he swallows it, he doesn't chew it. I'm like, we've worked hard on this. Savor this, chew it, get the flavor in your mouth. There's a beautiful smoke ring, there's a nice, you know, crust on this thing. You didn't enjoy any of that, you just swallows it. And maybe that's kind of you with the great blessings of the Lord. You haven't tasted them, you're just like you're running through life, you're going so fast, and you can, you know, so you're saved, you're redeemed, you're a royal priesthood, your holy nation. You're like, Yeah, 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 swallow, swallow chew it maybe today it'll help us just to slow down and chew on the fat the goodness of the Lord so we begin in verse 4 and we read coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men but chosen by God and precious so we see here that we've been invited to come to the Lord coming to him what a privilege now, it's kind of an odd thing. That we're talking about a, the metaphor we have in front of us is a, a building project. okay? And so we're talking about a living stone. We're, t- we're going to talk about the house of the Lord. We're going to talk about the cornerstone and all these different elements, and then what happens in that house. But what we read is that we're coming to him as a living stone. The, the one we're coming to is Jesus. And a stone is, um, especially back in the ancient days, was key for building a stable home. Jesus talked about building your house upon the rock, right? Same kind of idea, slightly different uh, technique, but, but the same ideas. you want it to be secure. And stones are inanimate. They, they're, they're great for what the job that you'll have them do, but they're, they're not alive. So this stone, which would anchor a building, also is a living stone, which f- refers to the life that comes from him to us. It speaks of the fellowship. It speaks of the relationship. And prophetically, as we will see, it also speaks of the judgment that is going to come. As we survey just a few scriptures, uh, you see that this metaphor of Jesus being the living stone or the chief cornerstone is used throughout the Old Testament and is often referred to and quoted to uh, from in the New Testament. So Psalm 118, verse 22 the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And of course, Jesus is that that cornerstone. The builders were the uh, leadership of Israel that was alive when he was walking this earth, and they had him crucified. They rejected him. Uh, Isaiah eight fourteen. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Luke 20, verse 17, Jesus refers back and he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? So Jesus applies it to himself and them so we know exactly what it's talking about. Um, Peter does the same thing in Acts chapter 4, verse 11. The same thing, the stone which uh, was rejected by you builders has become the chief cornerstone. And then Romans 9.33, Behold, a lay on Zion, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Whoever bleeds on him will not be put to shame. And we could keep going. My, my idea is just to, to show you that uh, what Peter's talking about, what he's going to be quoting from, it's really from it's throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, something we should be mindful of. But what we find here is that we are coming to him as to a living stone, something that will anchor us, something that will give us life. He's not just you know, dead you know, information and truth. He's alive and all are welcomed. We can come to him. This is the amazing offer of the gospel is to come to Jesus and to receive the life that he offers. If it were not for God being willing to humble himself and come as a man, we wouldn't have the opportunity to come to him. But he has done that. God has opened the door for finite man to come to an infinite God. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, you may be able to be there for a friend who's having difficult times. You may be able to be there for two. If you're really good, you could be there for three. If they all had were having a meltdown. But after that, you're pretty much, I'm out. I don't have anything left. My shoulders... And my my heart's bigger than my shoulders, right? I would love to, but I just can't handle that much. And we have limitations. And yet here Jesus says, everyone can come to me. He not only has a heart, but he has his shoulders to bear the burden and the weight, the disappointments, the frustrations, the, the way you bring the house down on yourself. He can handle that too. All of this, Jesus invites us to come and to experience him. He's not wanting you to to go somewhere else. He's not turning you away. The house of God is not full. Heaven is not filled up. He has room for you and he invites you to come. But the question I want to ask is, have you come? Because you have to. You've got to make the decision of like, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to set my, my eyes upon him. The Lord says, my hand is stretched out to you all day long. And today is the day of salvation. So the Lord is wanting you to come to Him and He's wanting you to come now and His hand is reached out to you. If you have not come to Jesus Christ and you have any awareness, any understanding in your mind that He is Creator, He is Savior, He died on the cross for you and you are a sinner and you know He's the one that has to forgive your sins, you got to come to Him. I mean how long are you gonna let that just sit on the table? How long are you going to allow that to be there? Because the Lord says, I'm not going to always strive with man. I'm not going to always be urging him and calling him and pleading with him. There comes a time when the Lord says, that's enough. And if you have that awareness that you need to come, then come today to Jesus who says, I want you to come. I want you to bring all the brokenness and all the heaviness, all of that. Come to me. How loving and how kind he is. We got to come to him because there's no other way to get to heaven We have to come to him because there's no other way to have life during life. Obviously, all of you are alive here. But are you alive? Do do you have an abundant life? Let me read to you from John 10, verses 7 through 11. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Jesus wants you to have life and he wants you to have an abundant life. He doesn't want you to just barely be getting by. He wants you to have an abundance He wants there to be an overflow in your life that it comes from him. Now, in here, Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd. And he also says that I'm the door. And I know a lot of you know this, but in ancient times, and even to this day, actually, you can go and if a shepherd is out there bringing in the, the sheep, they will try to bring them into an enclosure at night. And there's various ways they can do this. Sometimes it's just a lot of, you know, tightly wound brambles that they'll put around that have thorns on it that will keep them in and others out. Um, And then it will come to a place, there'll be a very narrow opening. Just, I mean, it's not, you know, not a huge opening. It's very narrow. And that is the place that the shepherd sits and sleeps. So once he, all of the animals are in this enclosure, he will lay down, which in an opening, he becomes what? He becomes the door. And nobody can come in or out. You can't have pasture unless you pass through him. And if anybody wants to come, uh, the thieves and, and the, uh, you know, the robbers, they're going to try and climb the wall. They're not going to go through him. He's going to protect. You've got to come to him. You've got to go through him to have the abundant life. And you're trying with all your might to make the most out of this life and achieve dreams and have goals. Great, have goals, have dreams. I've got, I have them. I have those too. But... But they can't dominate our life. They need to be, Lord, I'm looking to you to fill me up and to give me meaning, to give me purpose, to tell me how to order my day, to tell me how to order my life. Have you come to Jesus? Because here Peter's talking to a group of people that had come to Jesus, and he wants you to come as well. And so he says that of this stone, that verse 4 was rejected indeed by men. And we're going to discuss more about this rejection in just a couple of verses. So I'll kind of hold it for there. But there's only one thing that matters when we stand before God at the end of the age. And that is, what did you do with my son Jesus? What did you do with the living stone? Did you come to him and fall upon him and find, you know, rescue? Or did you reject him? And we'll talk more about that rejection in just a moment because it comes up again. But what Although man may reject Jesus, what about the Father? Well, the Father has chosen him. This is my chosen servant, right? This is the one that he sent. He is precious to the Lord. So if God in heaven views the Lord as precious, how much more ought we to be viewing him as precious? Which is, again, another question. First question, I said, have you come to him? But now, to those that have come, I want to ask you, is Jesus precious? Is he valuable? Is he meaningful Is he esteemed in your life? Because that is how the Father looks upon his Son. And it is the expectation that we too, especially us who are redeemed and saved by Jesus, how could we have any other view other than to view him as precious? He is rare and unlike any other. There is no other place you can go where you can find salvation. He's the only one that can give you abundant life. He's paid the debt. He is all we need. He is the truth. He's precious. And we should esteem him as such in our life. And his priorities and his call and his direction in our life it should equally be as precious because it's coming from him. Not annoying. Not something that irritates us. But something that is welcomed knowing who it comes from. Verses 5 and 6 says, You also as living stone. So Jesus is a living stone. But you also as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. Right? So we have the stone, but now the stones have made the house. A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore it is also contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he who believes in him will by no means... Be put to shame. So here we're talking about the New Testament house and we're also talking about the priesthood of this new house. First of all, let's talk about the materials of this house. Well, it's you. It's me. It's us. It's everyone who's come to Jesus. Each of us are a living stone. And the Lord is fitting us together. He's building us together. You know, one thing uh, about the temple when they built it, and keep you put that, that slide that shows a picture of it, this whole thing was made of stone, right? It's stones. And, and what is amazing about how they built it is with all those thousands of stone, not one of them was cut in place. They were cut out of the, you know, the bedrock. They were measured. And then they, once they were the right size and shape, they would send them over because the Bible says there was not to be a hammer or chisel herd in the construction. So that was at another place. And you are that stone that the Lord has cut out of this earth, right? And, and you're unique, and he has perfectly fit you into the body of Christ. And together, all of us a bunch of blockheads, right? Or put together, um, and we are fit together. And, and this is the material. So you look at that, and say, like, that's beautiful. But if you could just imagine just seeing a bunch of faces instead. And that's, that is the temple, Today, uh, this is called the house of the Lord. This isn't the only place in scripture where it talks about us being the temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Oh, that's exactly what happened at that temple, right? The Shekinah glory rested above the ark and the presence of the Lord was there. And so in this house, us, Each of us being built up together. The Spirit of God dwells within us. Using a different metaphor in the book of Revelation. It talks about how Jesus walks in the midst of the lampstand. The lampstand is the church. And so the Spirit of the Lord is in our midst. Living stones put together that have come to Jesus Christ. And now the Spirit of God dwells within us. Again in 2 Corinthians 6.16, it says, what agreement has the temple of God? with well, titles, for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. You want one really good reason why to go to church? Boom, right there. Jesus goes to church. And he walks in the midst of the lampstand. He walks in the midst of the stones of the church to minister, to reveal, to receive worship, and to receive honor. So we're living stones, but verse six, we see that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is the foundation. The cornerstone was a a block of great importance in construction, It, it kind of held together, bound together the other sides of the building. So this was vital. Peter refers to Isaiah 28, 16 when it speaks of Jesus as being that cornerstone. And I read, Behold, I lay on Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. So we are the living stones and he's what's holding it all together. We understand that he's the chief cornerstone. And a life that does not have Jesus as their anchor is going to lack integrity. Like a house or a building that's not built well, that doesn't have a good foundation. You don't want to be in that house when it comes under stress. Oh, it's fine when it's, you know, bright, sunshiny day and nothing's going on. But when the house begins to come under the stress of the elements, you want to make certain it has a good foundation. Let me tell you, when they built this thing, the, like every, You see three pillars right there? You see three pillars right there? You cannot believe how deep those pillars are. I mean, like, I could have fished out of them. I got a picture of some, I mean, uh, they are, even the building inspector came and looked, he said, why are these things so big? Like, this is what the engineer said, he says, I've never seen, this." you're in a very secure building, okay? There's a great foundation here, but there's even a better foundation And the living stones. And his name is Jesus. He is that chief cornerstone. So you have the living stones. You have the chief cornerstone. And it's being built up into a spiritual house. What is the purpose of this gathering? What is the purpose of of people coming together? And not just here, but throughout this town, throughout this state, our country, and throughout the world. There's a lot of people gathered together. What is the purpose? Well, we read here that we're being built up, verse 5. To be a spiritual house. We're not a political house, okay? We're, we're, We're not some kind of social agenda house. We're a spiritual house, and we have as our chief aim and purpose to come and glorify the Lord. That is our number one purpose, is to come and to worship and to glorify Him. And then we also get to minister and edify each other. And then we get equipped to go out there and do the work of the ministry and be a light. This is not a gathering. Now, people will look at the church and they will see it. I mean, listen, we're coming up in election you know, cycle, so buckle up. I'm sure it'll be f- full of polite ads and all the rest. And, and they're going to get into this, but you know, they're going to be talking about certain blocks of voting, you know, this, 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 you know, the evangelical vote. <clears throat> well, that's the spiritual house. You know, and they look at that, you know, that spiritual house, those that have an evangelical belief, like a conservative Bible-believing belief, and many will look at that and they'll see that as a, a block of voters to get together to serve their purpose. But that, that's not our agenda. Our agenda is not to do that. We're a spiritual house that has spiritual goals, and that is to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. And whatever we do, therefore, must be spiritual, Whatever we engage in should, should be going through the filter of, does this please the chief cornerstone? Does this please the one who walks in the midst? And so it's no longer what I want or what you want. We're seeking to discern the will and the mind of God through the Holy Scriptures and the ministry of His Spirit to do this. And so that means we've got a super narrow hoop to jump through. And I'm all right with that. I'm okay to jump through the narrow hoop. This is our purpose. Well, there's so many things. out there. You're right. There are a ton of things out there. And, you know, maybe they have their place and function in our society. But the church should never be drawn off of her mission. And that is to be a spiritual house. And as we come together, there'll be plenty of earthly good that we're going to do. Jesus has told us to care for the poor. He's told us to care for the needy. He's told us to pray for our government. He's told us to love one another. He's told us to go and evangelize. There's plenty of good that we're going to bring. Uh, you know, there, There's a, a book out there. It's called Jesus Skeptic. Has anybody read it? Anybody read Jesus Skeptic? You get out. I'm the only one. Okay. So go read this book. And if you're like, I don't want to pay. Or go to Jesus Skeptic. I think it's .com or .org. And, and just read... Through all the good things that the church has done for this world. Literacy, science, medicine, universities, hospitals, caring for those in prison. Go through it. Read through all that was done. If you look at any of those areas I just mentioned you will find it was Christians who wanted to bless in the name of Jesus that set out to do all those things. Unfortunately, a lot of those things now, they're still doing the same things, but they're no longer doing it in the name of Jesus. So anyways, yeah, we, we're a spiritual house. And we are also told who the workers are. You as living stones are being built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. So the workers of the New Testament are the living stones, which are you. You are a part of a priesthood. You know, you think of Aaron. You think of, you know, uh, uh, you know, Eleazar. You think of these different priests that served the nation throughout Israel's history. You are a priest in this new house that God is building with the living stones that are sitting around you where God's spirit dwells. And he says that we're the priesthood. A priesthood was an intermediary that would go on behalf of the people to the Lord, and then back to the people. Well, Jesus is that mediator, right? But we still serve and uh, minister to people. And we don't have to sit and say, well, what is it? I mean, they offered up bulls and goats, and they were cleaning the temple, and they were, you know, doing all these things. What do we do as priests under this new work? Well, skip with me down to verse 9. Where he talks about the priesthood again and will be told. But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. And there it is. That you, more procl- that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here it is. We're, one of the duties that we are to do is to proclaim the praises. And just in case you're not making the connection between that being a part of the priesthood and that being a priestly duty, let me read to you Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is a fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. So this is one of the primary tasks of this spiritual house, is that each of us are to be coming and worshiping and bringing these sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. I realize you do that on your own as you're driving down the road, as you're having a quiet time. That's wonderful. It should be happening far more like that than it does here. Right? This is only a limited amount of time. But there is something special about doing it together. There's something wonderful about being able to lift up our voice with other voices. And, and to, yeah, to be in the house of the Lord with others. And we are to continually offer this sacrifice of praise. Giving thanks. Not sometimes, all the time. Which means this. Um... Yeah, you don't get late to church because it's just worship. I kind of, I, I said that, and I was walking in here um, after last service, going back to get a drink of water before I came out. And I was coming back in, and I looked at him, and I was like, it's eight minutes until the service, and this room is filled up. Um, I know it was only because you wanted to get here early to worship. It, was, it had nothing to do with the seat, right? But, um, so, that's, other services might do that. But I know you guys are getting here for that sole purpose. I've got to get a seat. have got to get there early. But it does give you kind of a cool amount of time just to sit down, doesn't it? Just kind of like, ah, I'm here. What am I about to do? Oh, I'm about to go to work. I'm about to go do my priestly duty. I'm about to go lift up holy hands. I'm about to speak uh, praise to the Lord. And uh, David said, may the evening sacrifice be as the lifting, of, may the, uh, lifting of our hands be as the evening sacrifice. So there was a lamb that was offered up in the morning. Was a lamb that was offered up in the evening. And, and as we lift our hands, the psalmist said, may that be like the evening sacrifice that was a worship to you. When we lift our hands, it's worship to you. So, yeah, we're the workers of this new building, right? Uh, the, this temple called the Church of the Living Stones with God in our midst, and we are to worship. But the next verse in Hebrews gives us another sacrifice, that we are to engage in. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Well the Old, Old Testament. They would bring their offerings in for the poor of the land. And so when you see need you meet the need. And so we are able to serve in that capacity as well. Showing kindness and love to those that are in a place of need. Romans 12.1 says that we should offer up our lives as what? Living sacrifices. That's kind of a catch-all. Everything we do as a priest should have that element. As a priest, it should have that element of worship and praise. So, so important for us to, to walk in this way. There in verse 6, it says, at the end of verse 6, it says, And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. You know, the, earth, the world loves to shame us for our faith. Are you one of those born again? You actually believe in the Bible. You believe in the miracles. You believe Jesus died. You believe Jesus rose from the dead. Are you waiting for him to come back? And they love to make us feel stupid for what we believe. And sometimes we feel that. You know, we feel that pressure. We feel, you know, that they're trying to make us feel ashamed. But I'll tell you when you're not going to feel ashamed when you're standing next to Jesus. This is what it says in the book of Revelation that those who persecuted you and those that. You know, uh, mocked you that they're going to come and they're going to bow down before you in worship. Now they're not going to bow down to you in worship but they're going to bow down. There's only one person who gets worship. Who is that? So they're going to bow down to worship and he says you are going to bow down before you. So where are you in proximity to Jesus? You're right here. And those people are going to come that have mocked and ridiculed and, and, and made you feel stupid for having faith in Jesus and they're going to come and bow. You're not going to feel ashamed on that day. You know what else? is when, when the Lord places that crown of righteousness upon your head and decks you out in a robe of righteousness. When he invites you to sit upon the throne like the Father invited him to sit upon the throne. Read it, Revelation 3. You're not going to feel stupid then. You're not going to feel ashamed. When he begins to reward you for the way in which you've served him and praised him and, and ministered. You're not going to be ashamed. You're going to be thinking, that was the best decision I ever made. You're going to have such a sense of honor. Such a sense of love. And high standing with the Lord. We are told that we are joint heirs with Christ Jesus. It's kind of hard to wrap our minds around that. But in that day, we're not going to have a hard time. We're going to understand it. So they may try to make us feel ashamed for what we believe today. But you know what? They're the ones that don't know the truth. Don't ever let them move you off of the mark. You are not going to be put to shame because of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 7 and 8. Here we see that Jesus is that rejected cornerstone. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word To which they were also appointed. So verses 7 and 8. Jesus is that rejected cornerstone. Jesus came. He was born there in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. He then moved to Capernaum and began to do ministry. And for three years he did ministry. And he did amazing stuff. He raised people from the dead. He, He miraculously fed people with just a sack lunch. Thousands were fed and more food was left over than they began with, right? I mean, all these miracles, the blind were able to see, see, the the lame were able to walk and they didn't have to go through therapy. Don't ever ever miss that. It's like, they've been lame since birth and Jesus picks them up and there was no therapy. The guy began to break dance, right? I mean, he just began to break out in dance, you know? I mean, he was, he learned right away. All of these miracles the Lord did. And you know what the world of that day said? What the the leaders of Israel, what Rome said? They said, yeah, we don't like you. We don't like what you do. We don't like what you say. We don't like that you raise people from the dead. We don't like that you give people their sight. You know why? We don't like it when you teach and the world stops because that's our glory. We used to have the attention that you now have. This is what Pilate says. He knew that they had turned Jesus over because of envy. Wow. And so this is what the world did. They rejected him. The word reject means to evaluate and flunk. They looked at him closely. They studied him. They plotted how to ask the hard question. Right? They really looked at him. And when it was all said and done, it's like, yeah, we reject you. This is exactly what the psalmist said would happen, Psalm 118 verses 22 and 23, that they would reject him. I mentioned how the temple was constructed in silence, right? there, You didn't hear the chisel, you didn't hear the hammer. That was done elsewhere at the quarry, and then they would be brought over. There's a legend, there's a tradition, there's nowhere that um, you have any historical evidence. It's certainly not in the Bible. Um, I don't, I think it is just legend, I think it's just tradition, but it's I think one that illustrates well this truth here. The tradition is that when they were building the temple that the, the, the foreman got a letter saying, hey we are now ready for that cornerstone. It's the cornerstone. Went back to the records, we sent you the cornerstone. Comes back, we have no cornerstone. It says no, Josiah and Joseph, they brought this over. Zedekiah signed for the cornerstone. Here are the dimensions. Is that the stone? That's exactly what we need. So then they began to make inquiry. Began to look around. Where's that cornerstone? What is it? And then they came to the conclusion. Well, it was in the way. And we kept on trying to build and it was in the way. And so we had to move it. And eventually we moved it so many times we thought it was a mistake. It wasn't the right stone. So we toppled it over the 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 side of the the cliff, and it fell down into the ravine. The cornerstone had come in that little story, and they had rejected it. Again, there's no historical evidence that ever happened, but it gets shared like that a lot. But it does beautifully illustrate what happened with Jesus. Jesus You know, cut from heaven and sent to this world to be the chief cornerstone. And the builders looked at this cornerstone, Jesus, and said, we got no room for you. You don't fit into our system. You don't fit into our life. And they rejected him. That is still going on to this very day. People are still stumbling and they're still offended at Jesus Christ. And they don't like who he is and what he calls them to. Now at the last line of verse 8 of these that were disobedient and stumbled at him it says they stumbled being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. That's kind of a troubling line a little bit. What does that mean? So like they were made for the sole purpose to reject the Lord? I don't believe that's what it means at all. What What I... Fully believe this means it's, it's prophetically. We shared all those verses from Isaiah and, and from the Psalms. The Lord announced what was going to happen. He knew. He had foreknowledge. He knew that when Jesus came, that they were going to reject him. And God can have foreknowledge without determining the events of which he already knows before they happen. That's, that's hard for this up here. I, I got it. But, but let me give you a, a simplistic illustration Parents can identify, not all the time, but a lot of time, parents can identify what a child is going to do before they do it. Part of us learn behavior. Part of it is the Lord just warns you. You're just paying attention. You just have a sense. And um, you see it happening. It's like they're toddling around. We've told them not to go down the stairs, but I can see that they're headed for those stairs. I better get over to those stairs. Maybe they'll toddle over there. It feels like I'm going to pick up the speed and get over there by those stairs. And sure enough, they just go walking and they're about to take it. You grab their hand and you pick them up. You knew what was going to happen. You kind of foresaw that that was going to take place. But that didn't mean that you made them. You didn't push them down the stairs, right? Right? You didn't do that. I hope not. And so, you know, you knew you could see it coming. And that's with the imperfect knowledge. But how about the one who dwells outside of time, who looks down and sees the end from the very beginning. It's all the same to him. And he has perfect knowledge that this generation was going to reject him. And in that sense, I understand, and I believe we should understand, that they were, um, uh, that was the appointment. It's not that God made them, because what does Scripture say? God is not willing that any should perish. To the builders, Jesus said, you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. He didn't say, you builders have no opportunity to come to me because I've already determined that you're going to hell. No, that's not it. He put the the blame on them for rejecting him. It's just that God knew that it was going to take place. So we pray that you will be one that is obedient to the Lord and will follow the Lord. Let's wrap it up here. Verses 9 and 10. And we read of the believer's blessings. Here's another kind of look at the grace of God, right, that we've tasted. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy." In Exodus chapter 19 verses 5 and 6, write it down as a reference. You'll find such similar language uh, to the nation of Israel as is just mentioned to the church. Really to the Gentiles who were outside of the promises of the Lord. And some will look and say, see, the promises of God have been revoked to Israel because we read them here that they are for the Gentiles, it's for the church. But the text doesn't say that. It doesn't say that it was, it isn't speaking of, of, you know, excluding, it's speaking of including. We've been included in this. And as Paul has said of Israel, that they have departed for a time, but when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then they will be saved. But let's look at these blessings, A, a chosen generation. That's God's sovereign initiative to make you a part of his family ponder that yeah chew on that piece of meat right there for a day or two think on that just chew on that fat and allow all the the juice and all the the grace to just come to your mind that he sovereignly of his own initiative chose you or that your royal priesthood we talked about being priests but we're also royalty Because we're sons and daughters of the king we've been adopted in. And so we are walking down both of those paths. Not only of being uh, royal, but we're also the priests. And we're a holy nation. You know, Christians are their own people group. Like we have flags, and we have languages, and we have culture. Well, we are God's people group. And the church is called a holy nation, made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. What a shame it is, as a holy nation, God bringing his people together that sinful men and women who feel they are a part of this would seek to exclude somebody from being a part of that nation because they don't look like them, or talk like them, or have money like them, or whatever it is like them. But we're a holy nation. And then he says we're a special people. We are a people whom God has set aside with a special affection upon. He's called us to bless us. And we already talked about this, but we are to be a people of praise. Now it ought to be easy. It ought to be easy to praise the Lord because you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're his special child. It ought to be easy for us to follow that next part that we proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is how we should respond. Now it says there in verse 10 that we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. And so as Gentiles, and there are some of you that are Jewish, but for us Gentiles, we weren't a part of the covenants and promises of God. Israel was to be a light to the nations, to bring them to that. And that was fulfilled most wonderfully and awesomely in Jesus Christ. But Ephesians 11, chapter 2, verse 11 through 13 says, Remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ. You were without a Messiah. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, And strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world but now but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ or verses 19 through 22 I encourage you to read it on but you're going to see the same thing but now we're a dwelling place of the Spirit of God so Peter's referring to this used to not be yours but now this is yours. You are that chosen generation, that royal priesthood, that holy nation, a special people to proclaim the praises. You are the living stones of the new house of God. You have the spirit of God in your midst and you as the priests and the priestesses of this new uh, covenant, this new work are to be offering up sacrifices and of praises. That is a pretty tight picture of what the purpose of our life and our gathering is all about. And if we don't keep it inside there, we're going to miss out. And we're going to get distracted with the things that are around. May that not happen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Lord, even in this half hour or so that we've read this and pondered it and chewed on it. Lord, we, we taste your grace. We taste how favored and loved we are by you. And we do want to proclaim praises. We want to lift up holy hands. We want to lift up our voices with shouts of praise and thanksgiving. If you are one that has come to Jesus as a living stone, is he precious? Or was he precious? Is he precious to you? And if you haven't come to Jesus, then come right where you are. Say, Lord, I'm done. I'm done carrying this load and this weight and this miserable life I'm coming to you and I want you to just pour out into me this salvation he will hear you as you pray he will receive you and if you are definitely a believer but you're just like man my life has just felt so heavy and hard and dark slow it down take some time taste of the grace that's been poured out upon you And if these things that we've gone through today as a believer just don't seem to be making much of a difference, you need to go and you need to be in the presence of the Lord. And you need to start studying these until they become a big deal. Until it's like it's juicy in your mouth. The grace is like, wow. Thank you, Lord. He is so good. He is so good to us. Let's stand.